Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter at underscore NJ Watson. And today we're talking all about writing for TV comedies from classic multi-game sitcoms to cable and HBO Darlings, as well as anime comedy. We are joined by a very special guest. Dan O'Keefe, who has written for shows like Seinfeld, The Drew Carey Show, The League, Silicon Valley, Veep, and most recently was an executive producer and my boss on Final Space. Welcome, Dan. Hi, thanks for having me. Of course. Thanks for being here. And uh, let's get straight to it. So first up, where are you from originally and how did you end up in LA and in the industry? Uh, I was born on the Lower East Side of Manhattan and then turned into a shooting gallery in two senses of the word in the early 70s. So my parents moved us to an unincorporated strip of land in Westchester County called Mount Pleasant in between a very rich town, Chappaqua, and a more working class town, Pleasantville. But uh, they always told me to say I was from Chappaqua because it sounded classier and they got me into the, <laughs> the better school system. So, uh, New York. How did you uh, go from New York to living in L.A. and working in the industry? I was an editor, junior editor at Cracked Magazine, which was like mad, only for dumber kids. Back when <laughs> I was actually on paper. And I was also sneaking out at lunch and faxing packages to places. I had been trying to get on Letterman for several years, and I looked like I was going to get the job on a Monday, but then on a Friday I found out that the head writer had been demoted and a new guy had brought in who had swept off the desk. So then it looked like I was going to get Conan, but they ran out of money, so then they recommended me to the Leno show, The Tonight Show with Jay Leno, and I just kept adjusting the packet and faxing and for months and months and months. And then finally, I got an interview, which I had to go to Boston for, which was odd because mm. they taped the Leno show in L.A. And then I got that job. So they relocated me and I'd never been to California and got here at night. and It was raining. And then in the morning, uh, I walked outside and I thought I'd entered hell because they put me up at the Universal Hilton right by the city walk. So my first impression of L.A. was that it, I, and I didn't really know it was like a city walk. I thought it was just L.A. And it, it was nightmarish even in 1993. Mm -hmm. So uh, so what were some of your early inspirations, whether uh, from a TV or film that led you to the decision and, uh, and want to be a, a comedy writer? Monty Python, those Woody Allen books from the 70s that everybody had. Um George Carlin, a lot of the same touchstones everybody has. Um, Fran Leibowitz, who is a really dry, really funny essayist. You, I don't know if you know her work or not, but uh, I loved her stuff. And people like that. Um, I didn't know I was going to do TV at first. I thought I was going to do – both my parents are uh, academics. And uh, I actually wasn't allowed to watch television growing up, so it seemed like an unlikely choice. And I always <laughs> kind of thought it was – kind of looked down at it a little bit then I – out of college, a lot of my friends seemed to be making a living doing it. And the magazine thing in New York was drying up in the early 90s. So I moved in that direction. And you attended Harvard, right? And you wrote for the Harvard Lampoon. What was that experience like? Like being in a frat at FSU, <laughs> except uh, with more spectacles. Uh, it was a lot of fun. It was, it was um, a very bad magazine that was put out by some very smart people. It was like a training ground uh, for... A lot of uh, a lot of comedy writers. So it enabled you to fail miserably, but also you know figure out how certain types of comedy writing work. And some really super talented people came out of it. And so did I. <laughs> well, to that point, uh, what were some of the things you feel like you learned uh, working for the the Harvard Lampoon that you sort of took and used in your own comedy writing? Joke structure, I guess. Although I hadn't mastered it that well before I started working. Just a lot of the ability to write stuff and have other people critique it. How to take criticism how to i certainly didn't realize know how to write a script because it was 
you know, all sort of short comedic stories and essays and whatnot. So maybe not that much. I, I just sort of had the opportunity to write things that I was hoping were funny, but looking back, were generally not. Do you feel like being a part of that kind of network helped uh, give you an end to Hollywood, given how many notable comedy writers have come there, like uh, the Simpsons writers, all that kind of thing? Or was it more just having that basis in, in comedy that helped? See, the, it, it's a, it is a big network, but that only works if you haven't antagonized 75% of it by being a big <laughs> drunken jerk in college. <laughs> so, um, yeah, no, no, it, 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 it on occasion was not helpful, but on, but on multiple occasions it was quite helpful, yeah. I mean, I've tried to actually avoid working in lampoon shops, places where there's too many. I mean, it's, it's changed now, actually, for the better. Uh, but uh, there was a certain, it was a period when a lot of, uh, some of the voices were could be a little homogenous. So I, I've generally worked in a place where there's only, some, sometimes I've been the only lampoon guy. Sometimes there's been a couple. On Seinfeld, there was like, you know, seven of us. So that, that's an exception. <laughs> I have also been told numerous times they're not going to read you. They got too many lampoon guys there. So tell us a bit about your first job in the industry. It was on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno. Well, it wasn't in LA. It was in New York. It was called Dirty Laundry, and it was in a very dirty part of the MTV building. It was uh, an MTV comedy game show, originally called Dorm Room, then renamed, in which roommates were... It was a proto-reality show with comedy mixed in. It was a game show where roommates competed to, I think, never aired. It was awful. Oh. Um Figure, see how much they knew about each other, sort of like the newlywed game. <laughs> and um, there were a lot of really, I mean, Ian Maxwell Graham, who was on The Simpsons Forever, and I just worked with on Veep, was there, and Larry Doyle, who wrote on The Simpsons Forever. And I think Tom Hertz, who's a very talented stand-up who created some shows, was there. I think, was John Stewart there, or was he on the next one? So that was my first TV job. And after I was an editor of the, a junior editor of the National Lampoon, not the Harvard Lampoon, different thing. Uh, that was my first gig out of school. That blew up and they fired everyone uh i uh wrote on that show and then it became clear that wasn't gonna air it was terrible and then i moved over to i think another comedy central show that also ended up not airing because it was terrible and then i was an editor on cracked then i then i got the first actual network gig and actually i think the first thing that actually aired so that that's a yeah that's probably a better demarcation point. And how do you, did you go from job to job, especially when uh, it's on shows that presumably are not going to air or are not as successful at least initially? How do you manage getting that next gig? It's been a gig economy the whole time. Uh, you're in a state of constant terror. Uh, <laughs> the longest job I've ever had was six years. I've been doing this for over 25. You hope for the best. You keep updating your package of stuff you have to show people you try to overcome crippling social anxiety and go to places where you can actually meet people who could hire you and stuff like that just be constantly crippled by fear <laughs> yeah managing that which i find works in any profession really <laughs> exactly i would imagine in sitcoms when you first started writing was it a lot of kind of like freelance scripts and work in that way or were you kind of more in a full-time writer's room when I first went to the Tonight Show, I was in a full-time writer's room, but it was very, it was, it was late night in a slightly earlier era of it. I was, and there's bit guys and there's monologue guys. And the monologue guys were at the stand-up stuff at the beginning, like is the traditional format. And I did the more, slightly more outre desk pieces like the Johnny Carson or anyone else used to do and the people still do. And the jokes for them. There were two rooms, except that the the stand-up guys got to just have their own offices and sit in there all day. So, but the big guys had to sit in one little room. I think we were like the junior junior partners there. But it, yeah, it was full-time. You, you, you went there every day. Um, 
then my first sitcom was Married with Children. And back then, there was, I believe, a guild rule that every show on the air had to have at least two freelances a year. But that was back when there was pretty much only network. And so, unless something was canceled, the lowest number of episodes that a show would have in a year would be about 20. So, it was easier to do back then. Mm-hmm. In these days of limited orders and cable and streaming and all, stuff is better, but there's less scripts right. to you know give to freelancers. Although that rule did help a lot of people get in and was it helped uh, the middle class of uh, comedy writing and people starting out. It was actually a, a common way of people starting out back then was someone said, hey, this person is really funny. Give them a freelance. They did a freelance. It was good. They got a gig either there or somewhere else. And uh, can you walk us through sort of the differences between working in a late night uh, environment as opposed to a scripted comedy show, especially when it comes to uh, the kinds of uh, pitches that you make or uh, maybe even on a story level uh, or the kind of humor that you bring to the writer's room? It's tricky because I I didn't work on Letterman. I didn't work on Saturday Night Live and or uh, or The Daily Show, although I got really close to running The Daily Show. It still kills me. I didn't get that job Uh, at one point. Um, Well, the longest piece of writing you do when uh, you're on late night is maybe four minutes. You're not doing a telling stories that are very long. You're just delivering jokes in little bite-sized delivery vehicles. And Jay was great. He was very generous. It was a, a different era of television, which is weird for me to think that I was there there. But yeah, the longest thing I ever wrote would be an idea for a desk piece that I came up with that I then wrote a lot of the jokes for, and that would be two and a half minutes. Whereas when I started doing sitcoms, which I've done for the overwhelming majority of my career, those are, well, on a network now, what, they're 22, and on HBO, they're 28 minutes and 30 seconds. You can tell like a, like a two-reeler, like an old silent movie, mm-hmm. like an old Chaplin thing. Uh, was it a different environment kind of sitting around a table in a writer's room on a sitcom and navigating the kind of like the politics and the, the culture of that room as opposed to late night? Yeah, late night had had its own culture. I only worked on one late night show, so I'm not an expert, but I was only there for a year and a half. I had a five-year contract and Jay very kindly let me out after a year and a half to, to do this other show. But yeah, there was a little more of uh, the old uh, sort of Friars Club sensibility and, and I, I'm at, and I believe I understand that's changed a great deal it was, there was no net you were going live on tape in a few hours and every day you had to guests would fall out you'd have to write things at the last minute now sitcoms are terrifying and stressful and nightmarish and all that but you're not walking into your office in the morning knowing that at five o'clock you have to have things ready for eyeballs across the country. So it's a it's a it's a slightly more immediate visceral horror. <laughs> and uh, and to that point, how do you approach writing uh, a multicam that's going to be in the more theatrical realm of things as opposed to a single cam that's going to be a little bit more uh, polished in the sense of you know the, the writing and the craft? Well, I've worked on a fair number of both. There there are smart multicams. I'm hopefully going to sell one pretty soon. And there are pretty dumb single cams as you can see if you look back across the TV landscape the last 30 years. But yeah, generally proscenium shows, three camera, four camera shows, which are usually network, are broader 
they're awfully often more family based. I used to call them couch and stairs shows. So There's always a friggin' <laughs> couch and a friggin' pair of stairs, and sometimes it went di- a married with children went this way, and then on some of the on Rosanna went that way. But there's always a diagonal staircase behind a couch, and and uh, you know you told different kinds of stories. If it was a good show like the original Roseanne, like the original Cheers, you could tell pretty good stories and um yeah, that was a great show and, and cheers was a great show and uh seinfeld's actually although we did so many pre- at least by the time i got there at the very very end so many pre-shoots it was essentially a hybrid like uh how i met your mother but you approach it in that it has to at least the ones i've worked on they've, they've been on network rather than cable or streaming so they have to be less profane they have to be more grounded they have to have more quote heart Although back then we used to derisively call it Jarvik 7 because Jarvik 7 was the first artificial heart <laughs> um, invented by Dr. Jarvik, I believe. And uh, that worked. That is, I guess, one through six didn't keep anyone alive. Uh, and when the network would say that, that people need to tell each other why they care about each other out loud, like every human does all the time, <laughs> that would be like, oh, we need more Jarvik 7. Or at least <laughs> I, I really enjoyed that particular piece of sitcom dialect. However, that's not true all the time. On the Drew Carey show, there was a certain amount of sentiment, but it was pretty bleak. You had one character, they were all alcoholics. And uh, I actually went there over Frasier because I just, I was a communist in high school and I uh, but partly also they lowballed me. They were a, they were a top of the line sitcom. They did not have to pay anyone that much money, but they lowballed me. And uh, also they were about op- opera listening psychiatrists, which I'm not sure is a real demographic who talked about wine and coffee all day long. Whereas I, you know, there are people in my family who are closer to a guy who works as a janitor and a guy who works at UPS and a guy who works at a department store and they're all drunk all the time. I mean, there was some hokey stuff we did occasionally, but we also told some very interesting stories, and it was a very unusual show that never came together the same way twice. And also, there was this Christian newsletter that came out every year about the five most offensive jokes, the most anti-family jokes every year. And I was very excited one year. Or no, there was ten. Most of, uh, and there was one year when six of them were the Drew Carey show, and four of those were me. Um, so, you, it, 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 four camera doesn't have to mean schmaltz, although it often does. Uh, but it, it generally means it, it's broader, it's softer, it's often more family oriented, and, and as opposed to uh, on a single camera show, which are could be anywhere on network or streaming, but they've certainly been populating the big four lineup for many years. There's limits to what you can say and do, and you have to be a little more tethered to that previous proscenium tradition. But you can be a little more scabrous in your satire. You can um, be a little more abstruse in your references. You can, if you're on HBO, you can assume you have a slightly different audience than if you're on CBS. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it's not quite so simple as four camera versus single camera. Every network has its own audience. So you do approach it differently. But single camera shows aren't always, but they're often darker and often smarter, but not always. There's certainly a, a lot of, I mean, The Honeymooners, All in the Family are some of the smartest shows I've written. And there are a lot of single camera shows that are very precious and take themselves very seriously. You know, there's a line people like throw on with just important is the new funny. <laughs> a lot of single camera shows that fall prey to that. I would say it's not so much you approach a single camera show differently, or at least I don't, than a multi-camera show. You approach any given show differently depending on a variety of factors, including that, but also including network and including the showrunner, including the room, and including, you know, what's happening in the world at that moment. Did you frame that Christian magazine or newspaper? 
I should have, <laughs> but I didn't. I didn't. So as a writer, you know, going back to maybe Married with Children, how do you bring something fresh and new to a family sitcom when you've had decades of shows in that same mold? Like what makes it original and new and work? I mean, the easy answer is you don't. You, but when, you, when you're doing that as, as when you're writing a spec, which I, some people still do, the trick is you blend into the voice of the show. I mean, at least on Seinfeld, I had to write Jerry jokes that sound like Jerry and Elaine jokes sound like Elaine, but also pitch weird things from your own life. And, and uh, that show is a great example of the fact that there are, are things that are stranger than fiction. And uh, I mean, th there's a subcategory, which is which I've run into on many shows, which is, I know it happened, but it's not believable. <laughs> we, ca we can't do this story from what happened when you were growing up because it just seems made up, even though it happened to you. Well, in Married with Children, I just brought the ability to write a lot of jokes really fast, which I had acquired on Leno. I'm pretty good with story pretty good i was originally hired just because i wrote good drafts that's why i got the married children job so they really liked the drafts i wrote uh, i've been called a draft guy a story guy a joke guy here and there but the the thing that uh and i forget who actually this is really good advice so i really should probably remember who told this to me you'll never be the funniest person in a room you or you shouldn't assume that you should, you'll never be the best writer in the room you'll never be the best with story but you can outwork everyone and that's that's what i've tried to do which is if if you know, regardless of show, if someone wants 20 ideas, I'd give them 40, even if it annoys them. Or then I give them 30 next time if they're really, honestly, just annoyed that I'm throwing too much stuff at them. And uh, you've worked on, on so many different kinds of, of comedies across your entire career. So how do you manage not being uh, defined or uh, tied down with uh, specific expectations of the kind of comedy you can write for? You don't. Um, sometimes you get spocked. A lot of times people don't care. Like, I, I get a lot of festivus stuff you know, the request to do that little dance where I tell that story again but um, there used to be a, sort of a wall between late night and sitcoms and it was hard to people said yeah, if you write for late night you can't write for sitcoms and um, that's generally come down there at least for places like former Letterman writers and, and this and that uh, that's not so much true anymore but it's still true in terms of you know half hour and and hour which i which i get there are some things within each skill set that are not the same um try to vary your package like the stuff i send out if i'm trying to get a gig there's a you know multicam i sold to sony a while ago uh, but also this uh pretty dark single camera spec that turned out really well um have a variety of samples available um don't lean too hard. I mean, it, try, try to do a little bit of everything in, in your career and in a room in general. Don't just find one thing that you are good at and, and, and just deliver that same type of joke all the time. And it, it's, it's hard to set up a list of uh, commandments of how to do right. that because it's going to vary so much on a case-by-case -case basis. So tell your agents, well, if, if we ever get to have agents again, <laughs> and, and, and not that I'm complaining, I'm, 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 I'm pro WGA, but just be aware that that can happen. And um, I actually, that's not a huge problem that I've heard people say. I mean, if you're working, you're working. It's a really hard business to work in. And I've rarely heard someone say, oh, I can pay my mortgage because, you know, uh, I work on a, you know, an ABC4 camera, but uh, I would really like to, to work on a Showtime single camera. Well, so would a lot of people. And remember, the Showtime show will have less episodes, the uh, per episode payment will be less and won't run as many seasons generally. But not to depress you, but I believe I, I read somewhere, and this could be entirely untrue, but uh, 
feels intuitively right. The average length of a TV writer's career is, is like a few years, somewhere between like two and five, like an NFL player. If you're, you know, 10, 15 years in and you're like, oh, I got stuck as a single camera guy, but I want to do more accessible stuff. Well, if you get stuck as a as a as, a as an X type writer. of writer, that means people still want you for X. You know, given at one point I filled out a job to be an armored car guard because there was so little work. I don't see that as a problem, frankly. Right. Speaking of the NFL thing, I've heard that there are less working writers than there are NFL players as well. So it's kind of like more. Well, if you count uh, screenwriters, isn't it like a thousand or something? I don't know, but it's, it's yeah. not very large. People who work in a given year. So speaking of agents and managers, which you just touched on, how did you find your first representative when you were starting out as a writer? And how has that kind of helped you through your career? When I was first starting out as a writer, I still thought I also wanted to be an actor. So this was in New York way back. And actually, it was was an agency that was very reputable. It was a literary agency. They actually sold books and proposals and things. They handled actors and, and they handled some TV writing. So I signed with them and it was not useful because I left acting for a reason. I didn't feel like spending 10 years to find out if I could become very good. And anyway, it seemed like a, like a bad idea to be on that side of the camera. So that actually wasn't that helpful. I, I got all my jobs myself then and they were very supportive, but I was, there was a lot of mailing commission checks to New York, which just seemed inefficient. And then the first actual Hollywood agency that I, I went to, it was, I believe uh, Broder Curland Webb Uffner, which was a very, very good, well-regarded boutique agency. Um, and my agent there is now, I think, the head of ICM, Chris Silberman, who then was a young man in a hurry and uh, very good at what he did. So how did I get him? I was already working is how I got him, which makes it a lot easier, obviously. And did it change things for you once you had that big Hollywood agent to kind of put you out there more? Or was it still um, a lot of relationships? And, and I mean, I got married with children because... I got people to read me. I got people to read me because I knew a woman there who was Lampoon. But she only passed stuff along to some very skeptical executive producers who then were like, oh, all right, fine. And then I, after that, I got Seinfeld by, after a period of unemployment, by going to the Kinkos on Sunset and faxing ideas after begging people to be allowed to fax ideas there, which a lot of people did. And I did that for, I think, six, eight months. Every Friday, I would fax like five pages of, uh, each page had five paragraphs, single-spaced, of an idea. And that's 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 what they wanted. They didn't want one-liners. They wanted ideas for the, for the show, which were the, the building blocks of it. And so after six or eight months of that, I landed a freelance. I got to, I was very lucky. I got to write a, the 150th episode, the the pothole, and um, I'll co-write it because they ended up mushing my freelance together with another dude I hadn't met at the time. So my my stories were the drop knocking the girlfriend's toothbrush in the toilet and the um, adopting a highway, and then uh, the great Steve O'Donnell who ran Letterman for many years and who was the guy who apparently was about to fire me before he got demoted. <laughs> he was uh, who he I uh, was also co-credited, but. I do recall that, I mean, I didn't know how stuff worked. So having a Broder Curland Webb Offner agent putting me up for stuff was very helpful. And it got me meetings and I blew them. I mean, like he, they got me movie <laughs> meetings. Uh, I didn't really do much with them at that point. And I, I also didn't really, I wasn't interested in that then. So in terms of jobs, yeah, I got very close on a couple of things. They, they were helpful. They were, Broder was, was, a, was very helpful. 
Now, this is going to be a little bit random, but I saw that you mm -hmm. worked on the, the 2007 uh, game uh, on the lot, the Spielberg oh, uh, Christ. <laughs> with uh, Gary Fisher. I'm just curious uh, if you could talk a little bit about how that came about and like your experience on it. Uh, I, I barely remember that. It was very, it was a very strange way it was set up because it was... It was a, a, a game competition where people, it's essentially the goal was to find the next a director or a big... Uh, it was like Project Greenlight. Exactly. But uh, we had to like write little like scenes, short, yeah. short comic scenes or dramatic scenes for different directors to direct in different styles. It was it was very weird and there wasn't really an office. We just spent a lot of time like talking while walking through corridors <laughs> and... Yeah, I, I don't remember how I got that. I, I had just shot a pilot at Fox that didn't go. And I think my agents were like, oh, well, we got to keep him busy. And, <laughs> and the, that one was, was uh, I was with UTA then. And um, that one was, uh, that was all UTA. I didn't have anything to do with getting that job. That was, uh, that was nice of them. <laughs> and U UTA was great. Yeah, I, I was there 10 years. They were uh, fantastic. Going back to that freelance with Seinfeld, how did you go from getting that first kind of freelance script with them to more work with them? Did you end up kind of full-time in a room somewhere? How did that all work? Another period of firing faxes at them. I was waiting to see how the episode came out and it came out pretty well and people liked it. And um, so then at that point, what I did was I got the freelance out. I just poked my nose on your microphone. Um, <laughs> and then I got a little cold. So I switched agencies to UTA and um, UTA was pushing me there and they, they had some, people there and um but it was it was that it turned out well and i kept sending them more ideas they liked and i hung around the office and wasn't you know a lot of whether you can work on a show is, is first of all are you good at it but also are you someone that people really want to sit across a table with smelling your food for <laughs> you know nine months of a year and i guess they did so uh, i was very fortunate to work on the last i guess technically it was like a season and a half because i did a freelance and then the final season of the show. Uh, I, I had gotten, I had won myself some, some people who liked my stuff there. So I, I was never, I've never been more lucky. It was like winning the lottery to get to work on. Although it was also like winning the lottery to get to work on Veep. So I guess I won the lottery twice. <laughs> and after all those years working in all these different writers rooms, how do you stay malleable as a comedy writer and sort of stay fresh with your pitches and your jokes? Just, you have to read and absorb everything all the time as much as you can. And you have to do things like, they have this new thing called podcasts, which is like radio and you got to go and do them and like <laughs> find out like what, what that's like and, and stuff and actually listen to it in your car. <laughs> Although I, I sort of like just, I've signed up for a lot of these podcasts, but the only ones I've actually listened to are the D and D ones. So I'm sort of not, I'm not sure it's the, the, my intention was paying off, but just <laughs> I, I'm going next week. I mean, some of them are people that I've worked with, but there's going to one of those UCB shows. Um, and I go see comics when I can. And I tell my managers to send me any, if there's any, a, a really just great new comics back circling around. I want to know what other people are doing. And, you know, you, you did sort of homework. This is one, one reason why it's just much easier for me to watch when I'm just binging late at night, drinking like, British television shows about tormented detectives from London starting over in rural areas with, di with different <laughs> weird accents than it is to watch comedies. Because you, you got to watch comedies and know like the, what the, the best stuff is, like the, the Bojacks and the Dead to Me's and the uh, Russian Dolls and the this and that. It, not to use the phrase Busman's Holiday, because I, I always found that odd, but it's easier to 
to watch things that aren't comedies, but you have to you have to just stay current and you know know what is not not so that much you can deliver the same thing. It, that's actually quite a te- terrible idea. A, a smart agent once told me that don't ever write something because the market seems to be wanting it. Because by the time you're finished writing something like it, they'll be on to something else. Write what only you can do, and you, you know you bring your unique perspective to bear. Come up with a good idea, and then uh, beat it out in a smart way, and then write it. And, and then we'll tell you what's wrong with it. And do you use those uh, the drama shows almost as palate cleansers, essentially? Yeah, I suppose so. You know, just just seeing uh, people murdered in rural Britain is just very therapeutic. <laughs> you see every variation of David Tennant as a detective. I have actually. He's really good, and he, he was terrifying, Jessica Jones, <clears throat> and an evil galactic space commander. So. Yes, 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 very true. And now a word from our sponsor. Paper Team is brought to you by Simple Habit. Being a writer can be stressful with countless deadlines and late nights, so it's important that you create healthy habits for yourself to reduce that stress, like meditation. Simple Habit is an app that makes this easy. There are hundreds of meditations for free and thousands more available by numerous different experts and voices. Better yet, there's specific meditations for any issue you might be facing, like nerves about that big meeting. Simple Habits meditations can be as short as five minutes and used anywhere, like at your desk or on a walk. When I first started incorporating mindfulness and meditation into my routine, it was a game changer for my stress and anxiety. I can't recommend it enough. And as the number one ranked meditation keyword app on the iOS app store, and with over 65,000 five-star reviews, Simple Habit is a great place to start. The first 50 listeners who go to simplehabit.com slash paper team can get 30% off a premium subscription, and you can try it for free. So go to simplehabit.com slash paper team to get access to this exclusive offer, but only for the first 50 listeners. Stress less and write more by going to simplehabit.com slash paper team. And now back to the show. Do you feel like you've kind of heard like every joke and story before? Like how do you always put a new spin on something? No, 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 no. Every time I'm in a new room, like sure, there are structures that are still in use that are quite literally from vaudeville. And that structure was used in a music hall in New York when there were horses running around. I mean, yeah, but there's also the explosion of just of a talent in the last 15 years has revolutionized the landscapes and you have to, you, you can't just keep watching according to Jim repeats. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why you'd want to do that in the first place, <laughs> let alone, or, or originals from that matter. Yeah. No, you, you, you have to know the landscape and, and stay current or die, but it's fun. Actually. It's, it's like, I don't know why anyone who likes comedy, who works in comedy because they want to make comedy and they enjoy the process of it, why they would want to keep listening to and, and watching the same stuff. Like when they were, were actually, I mean, the, the Simpsons is obviously a landmark, but when you got additionally Archer and Bojack and, and others, really smart, like Rick and Morty, just incandescently dark, mm-hmm. complicated adult animated shows like that's that's not something that's existed before that's that's a new thing you know what i mean i mean the 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 simpsons was brilliant and and you know obviously was was appealing very consciously from the beginning right there was writing to children on the one hand and writing to adults on the other and that's yeah that's new it's 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 always evolving i mean those these dramedies some of the best shows on tv that that i've enjoyed the most like i I mentioned the russian doll and uh dead to me and um fleabag are monumentally not only good but important and i and i and i mean there's a show that i always loved that uh, every time i was like can i do something like that my everyone would be like no don't okay that was an anomaly <laughs> it was the days and nights of molly dodd in like the late 80s on network and people didn't know what to do with it and it was it literally a dramedy it was too dramatic for a comedy and it was and it, it, it was super funny mm-hmm. But, you know, there wasn't the same joke density. There wasn't rat-a-tat like the, with the, the flavor back then. And 
I always loved that. And, and I had VHS cassettes of it. And now they're basically, you can do that. And you couldn't do that back then. And also, like, uh, in, in movies, too. And, and although I, I'm, what I'm referring to now is, is a movie that I, I like the idea so much, I turned it into a, I chopped it down, used the premise in a sitcom. Uh, I, I recall being told by multiple executives after pitching a, a spec I had written and I really thought was good. Look, no one is ever ever going to buy a television show with an angry, dark, foul-mouthed female protagonist, okay? It just, it's on set. People don't want that. It's like, well, it turns out I was right. <laughs> and then, like, a few years after that, I think Trainwreck came out. And, uh, so, the, the it, it's really kind of exhilarating, the, the amount of not only new shows that I love, but also the different subgenres and the different ways that you can that that different kinds of people different people can express themselves and through the medium in a way that wasn't not only wasn't allowed before but was considered unthinkable uh, so speaking of that you expressed admiration for some animated comedies that are doing really interesting things like bojack and rick and morty is that kind of what led you to wanting to go into the animation space yourself or you're referring to final space yeah i was led into doing final space because i was told the job was available uh <laughs> and but it's another example of it it is Super weird. Futurama is really fun. It was a wonderful show, and I, I I know the creator somewhat. But this is very different. The, the combination of the just the the left-handed boxing style that Olin brings from YouTube, mm-hmm. and and David's extremely peculiar but old school vaudevillian sentiments. Mm-hmm. It's a really interesting combination. There's not a show like it. Mm-hmm. So. I became aware of it because I was like, I was told there's this thing that first season hasn't aired, but they, they need someone to run the room season two. And I was like, all right. Then I watched the material. I was like, this is out there. This is different. This is extremely, this is sort of a lot of the humor is can be appreciated by children, but it's super dark. And there's a body count every season, you know, and, and the guy worried that he destroyed the earth. Um, so, yes, I guess the, the long-winded answer to your question is yes. Now, how do you balance the serialization in something like Final Space compared to making it accessible on an episode-by-episode basis? Within the context of one show like Final Space? Or in general. You know, you've obviously worked on a lot of kind of hard reset sitcoms that don't have as much of an overarching storyline. Is that a so. term now, a hard reset sitcom? could be i mean i feel like I've did you make it before. up i've never heard that i think i've I think i've heard people say and it what does that mean that everything's self-contained yeah something like the simpsons where everything just at the end of the episode it resets oh. and there's no consequences i have an example of that uh, there, yeah. there was a married with children episode before i got there where the house burned down in an episode and then the next episode was back and i never <laughs> right, mentioned exactly that. yeah well there's the i've done both mm-hmm. and they're two different skills and you need to learn both because you never know when your next job is coming from within serialized shows are tough silicon valley was was an incredibly i was so lucky to be there pretty much from the beginning those were four the most fun years of my career that show is super serialized about the one step forward, two step back of a company specifically and a group of characters and their, their lives running into a series of obstacles, obviously like every narrative is since the beginning of time, that sounded really dumb. Uh, But that was a really successful in my mind combination of serialized arcs and individual stories that were very strong. Alec Berg who, along with Mike Judge, runs it, and Mike uh, created it. Just his process is, is really fascinating and really just drilling down. And there were so many iterations of all of those episodes that it was 25 drafts, 30 drafts of something. 
it had to both fit in the serialization of it and work as a story with discrete beats that were causally linked. And I mean, it's hard, but if you get it right, it's it's just it's really satisfying. I'm really proud that I I, I was able to work on that show for four years. And, and to that point, how much of the work in the resume is spent at blue skying and setting up sort of the the serialized narrative on a larger scale, as opposed to breaking the narrative on an episode to episode basis? A lot of both. I mean, generally, you spend the beginning of a year talking in broad strokes about. Sometimes, like Alec would always bring in. All right, I've been thinking about this over the summer. I have. And it was, we've been like, dude, you just did half the work. Like, you know, five really good ideas for episodes. And, and some, they didn't always stay. But uh, you generally talk, well, generally, about where you wanted the season to end up. And then you'd figure out stories along the way. People would contribute ideas that they'd have or pieces of their own lives. And you'd fill in cards on a board. You've been there. You've seen it. Uh, the difference is that on the Drew Carey show, as much as I loved working on that show, you knew where they were going to end up. And now we sure we we had the department store change owners and the innovativeness and and just weird stuff that they did was remarkable. And hats off to them. Like you know, live episodes, improv episodes, what's wrong with this picture episodes? No one's ever done that stuff. <laughs> it wasn't really serialized. I mean, sure, towards the end there was we there was, we married two characters, and then when one character was written off, we there was a reason for that that was interpolated, but. That wasn't a big concern. Where's the season going? And that doesn't, let's not say it wasn't serialized a little bit, because I think we put them in a mental institution at the end of one episode for some reason. At one season. <laughs> sorry, not an episode, at the end of one season. Uh, but it depends on the show, I guess. And then when it comes to a show like Veep, where you're kind of drawing off of things in the real world and referencing stuff that is kind of, I don't know, relatable, I suppose, to people out here. How do you work that into the story and make it still relevant and topical when the episode comes out? Well, Veep involved a lot of research into bad behavior in the field of politics. And then, of course, as Dave Mandel, the genius who was running that season, running that show, the season I was there, when we came back from the hiatus posed by the, the, um, the health of our star, the world had gotten a lot worse, and the level of dysfunction and incompetence and malignancy in Washington had—we didn't think it possible, but it had—it had, it had it reached a new order of magnitude. So, we, a lot of it had to be thrown out, and we had to go to a lot darker place. And Dave was the one who realized that. Within that, uh, I mean, a, a story that happened to me that involving a very arrogant, self-destructive sort of crazy character was partly used to fill in one of the stories for a very self-destructive, crazy character, the Jonah guy. So in other words, it had to all bear on political realities. And a lot of those stories came out of things that were heard or, or whispered to us from sources in Washington. But there were also personal stories of like this strange thing happened to me over the summer and you just translated into Veep. And can you speak to your experience being a writer on set, especially uh, in terms of the differences between being on set for a multicam as opposed to a single cam? In both cases, my experience has been that something I really enjoy is just rewriting lines on the fly. And sometimes if something isn't working on, on Seinfeld and on Silicon and here and there and, and Veep, we would rewrite scenes on the fly and we just turn the cameras off. We would sit down and, and I really like that. It's, it's, it's kind of frightening, but um, on single cams, a lot of the time there's only one writer covering the set because you're behind and the other people are in the room trying to figure out what the hell the next episode is. But that's not always the case. The first couple seasons of Silicon, it was uh, 
all the producers at least were around the set firing new lines all the time. And that was a blast on a four camera show. There's the tradition of just show night. People used to you know, put on ties and stand in the well. And uh, although in, in those cases, in my experience, there's less oddly enough of the rewriting stuff. If, if a joke didn't work, you'd try to beat it. But um, it, it's not as much as I just helped out on a Netflix show and single camera. And yeah, it was a ton of just of, uh, coming up with new stuff in the moment, which I really enjoy being on the sets. Well, it, if you're a writer on the set on uh, a single cam, you're usually a producer if you're the only one. And part of what you're doing is not just rewriting, it's making sure the trains run on time, making sure that the, the, the director and the actors, everything's flowing smoothly and um, the, that the, uh, the vision of the showrunner is coming through and all that. Whereas if you're a writer on a multi-cam set, and again, this may have changed, it's more just, all right, we wrote this. Let's see how, let's see how it goes. <laughs> and then, oh, that's not working. Should we talk? Should we do something there? I don't know, maybe. But like I said, the last time I worked on a multi-camera network show was, I think it was Are You There, Chelsea? It was uh, the Chelsea Handler. It was an unbelievably talented cast. Julie Larson, who was a, a Drew Carey show writer, is super talented, very nice. She created this um, along with, I think, Dottie Dartland. And it had um, Laura Prepon in it and Chelsea Handler and Ali Wong and Lauren Lapkus and um, Natasha Legero, like some of the best comics and comic actors right now. This is before anyone knew who they were, although they knew who Laura Prepon was, obviously. And that was, I mean, there was some pitching of new lines on that, but it generally it was me. I mean, if they needed new lines, they would just send me to do it. And so there, there wasn't that much. Once that episode had left the station, we were shooting it. And if, you know, there were some ad hoc tweaks that were needed, they would send somebody. And I was a consulting producer so uh, I wasn't as vital in the room so like why don't you cover it and I'm good at it so have you had a chance to spend a lot of time in the editing room with your episodes and kind of give input on cuts and what have you learned from that as a writer um, what, one amazing thing about Seinfeld was that Jerry basically gave you the first cut of your episode like I um, I didn't know this as one of the producers was like alright we finished your episode I'm like great He's like alright so we're going editing. I'm like, well, I'm sorry, what? Mm -hmm. And um, I, I don't know how to operate an Avid or anything, although I think I used to. But you put together off the assemblage that the editors have put together, you know, you edited it. And then, of course, there were, went through multiple other iterations. There was a director's cut, there was Jerry's cut. It was just seeing how the, the ways in which you could make a story more efficient or you could restructure a, a sequence that wasn't working by stealing audio out of some character's mouth from a, a later scene that wasn't going to gonna make it. Uh, it was very useful. And on Silicon, actually, um, because of technological advances, uh, Mike and Alec would be in the editing room, but they would also send several of the other producers cuts through the PIX network. So I would go and I would just write down, you know, 206. Is there a better take of this? So, yeah, I, I've done a fair amount of editing type behavior and it's super useful mm -hmm. to be able to see the unfinished product and how it gets to the finished product. Now you mentioned earlier you experience uh, pitching shows and, and selling shows. Can you talk a little bit about how you approach pitching original material to sell and any tips or advice you have about pitching essentially? In my experience, I think I've sold 12 pilots, shot one, aired none. The first time I think NBC just wanted to do 
a pilot with me because I was running, co-running the Drew Carey show. And I wrote a pretty good script and it almost got chopped. Didn't. Um, and then the second time I had an idea and uh, ABC was interested. No, ABC was the first one. Then NBC was interested and I pitched it and they liked it with, I think, Regency TV. I sold it and they bought it and um, I wrote it for them and they liked it and I rewrote it and it didn't end up getting shot, but it was a, it was a great experience. On the other hand, sometimes I've been approached and told through a manager or an agent, they want to do a pilot about this, come up with a take on this. So it's sometimes based on existing IP. Sometimes it's just an area that they want you to flesh out. Like for instance, I am now in the next couple of weeks going out to pitch at the big four and Netflix, I think a pretty, ideally a pretty smart, but grounded comedy with a recognizable piece of talent that uh, came with an area. There was a story, there's a magazine article about this place that um, was seemed like a show could be built there in some ways like Cheers. And I thought, yeah, I'd love to take a stab at that if it, with this piece of talent and that set. And I put them together and I spun out some stuff. But, you know, the actual germ of it, I didn't have to do that heavy lifting. On the other hand, there's a, something I'm trying to get going with the, a, a company that I, I respect a lot. One of the better ideas I've ever had. I've had a lot of pretty good ideas, but I've really had you know super good idea. I think this is a super good idea. So I'm hoping they like it because I've been banging on that. And I also uh, I sold and am now... I sent them, in, well, I'm working on a new outline to send them for their um, to approve, and then I start writing a show with uh, another company that has done some really, really quality TV over the last few years. And they knew what the world was. They wanted, to, like, Veep is politics. It's, it's not that. It's a different profession. It's a show about a profession, about people in this profession, which is, and that's pretty scummy, like politics. And I thought that was interesting. And so I spun up some characters in that world. So it depends on people will give you either nothing and you'll have to bring your own idea and, and spec it out or pitch it out. And sometimes they buy, sometimes they don't. But often, uh, it seems increasingly over the last 10 years or so, they will say they want to do a show about X or they want to do a show with X or they want to do uh, a version of this Swedish format. I, did a, I didn't sell it. And I can talk about this because it didn't go anywhere. My, my brother Larry writes Broadway musicals for a living, and I've always, you know, wanted to work with him. And there's there was this Swedish format in a trailer park, and it was like a musical. Now, in 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 the, the Nordic countries, apparently there's not a stigma like there is it's not a class thing so much. Some people just have trailers as a second home where they live in them. It's not a big deal. And I grew up partly in rural Vermont for reasons too weird to tell on this broadcast. <laughs> and so. I put together with my brother Larry and um, a company a pitch where a new manager comes to manage a trailer park in Vermont and, and gets into it with local politicians. Because it is true, um, like to generalize, but the people in Vermont are sometimes a taciturn sort. The, the conceit was that these people who didn't always say what they were thinking would sing what they were thinking and he heightened sing. And my brother wrote some great songs. We were on pitch that came very close at a couple of places. But it didn't go. That came out of, we have a format musical. We'd like to do a version of it. What we pitched had zero to do with that. I mean, less than zero. But 
I thought it was a rich, I connected to it because of a personal experience of mine. So I took the general idea of trailer park musical, translated it to America and brought in my brother. We had a great time, didn't sell, but you know, it was fun. Different ways. On the flip side of that, you've also done sort of rewrite work where you've been brought on to do passes of various projects, sort of features, animation, that sort of thing. Uh, what does that entail and how do you make yourself valuable when you're kind of coming in as a hired gun? That's what I've pretty much been mostly. I mean, I've sold a lot of scripts here and there, but I've mostly come on to other people's projects and I've been very lucky to do so. You're talking about movies. I mean, I have done punch-ups on movies. I just finished doing a, a punch-up for a, a movie based on Paw Patrol, this kid's show that my kid used to really like when he was little. And uh, yeah, the story worked fine. So I just added some jokes that could be absorbed safely by children. In terms of when you go on someone else's show, you're always sort of a hired gun. So it, it, it's just a, a more pure distillation of that. When you, And that, that is more of a feature thing than a TV thing. I mean, although I have been brought on to shepherd sometimes because uh, something isn't punchy enough, but usually the shepherding thing is that it's inexperienced writers or we want another name to help a network get over their queasiness. So what it's like to come on for a period of time and just punch something up, having no skin in the game, not sticking around as a producer, you try to respect the material and don't move any big pieces. Don't move the furniture around. My the thing, what I like to do is just provide people with as many options as possible. Like just if there's a place where there needs to be a joke clearly and the one there isn't holding its weight, I try to give five or six, seven, eight options, even though it infuriates people seeing all those revision mode, you know, backslashes and then another line or version of the line. Try to stay in close contact with the people who hired you on it, making sure you go in the right direction. Like on the thing I just did, I gave them half of, well, it was their idea, so I can't say I volunteered it. I gave them half of uh, the script with my interpolations to see if I was on the right track. And they were like, yeah, yeah, great. Here's these two things. These are not so sure about, but in general, you just keep going. For a punch up, I would say punch it up is the the best (laughs) advice. Now, uh, you've also run a room and and managed writers in that capacity. From your experience, what can a writer's room and uh, and the writers within that room do to make your life easier as a showrunner? I've run rooms more than I've run shows. But, you know, the the classic one is don't pitch a negative. But at the same time, that's not always true. Sometimes if people aren't seeing it and something is just egregiously wrong, I don't mind that personally. Something that you you try to do as as someone running a room is that if someone is for whatever reason, getting pushed into a corner, like if someone's good enough to be there, I want to know what they have to say. So so a lot of it is like, no, no, hold on a second. What was that? You know, or try not to, not just because it's not nice, but also because it affects the product. Don't crap in the faces of your fellows. I mean, don't, this is going back to the nineties when things were just much meaner. If someone, if you feel you're in competition with another writer for some reason, don't deliberately fake a cough while they're pitching in order to make it. I mean, play nice and just at the same time, well, I, I had a rule for myself, which is I will, even if I think something is just drop dead brilliant, I will pitch a joke or a story twice. Once, if someone says no, then I'll say, actually, I think this might really work here. And if that's the case, I'll never mention it again. I don't know. Put it in a notebook. I'll use it for something of mine. It's not going to go in. It makes you look bad. And you're slowing down the process. You have a finite amount of time before you go into production. So it doesn't help you and it doesn't help the show if you hink on something and just dig in your heels and say, no, no, this is the right joke. This is the right story. This is the right beat. Especially if it's things like a title for an episode that no one cares about. Don't don't obsess about stupid stuff. There's a term called, uh, is it a, a blackberry, a blueberry, um, 
the writer John Levenstein, I saw, he tweeted something that pitching something useless, like what fruits, what, what fruit a character is eating that bears no bearing on the story or thing. That's literally just slug line. It's just, it's just for props. Like the, constantly spit, spitballing 10 types of fruit is not helpful. Don't, don't expend your energy in ways that is not only not useful, but actually sucks the air out of the room. But I would say in general, just respect the authority of whoever's running the room uh, and res- respect the other writers in the room. And writers' rooms are can be sort of gladiator schools or, or um, pits full of wild animals. But, you know, try not to contribute to that if possible um, for a variety of reasons. And so for you, what are your long-term career goals and what kind of stuff would you still like to do in the future? I like to create a show or or two of my own that actually gets on the air. I really just like working. I like doing different things. So I like to keep doing this. I I, I haven't really written a book. I I used to think I would, both my parents have written books. A lot of my relatives have written books. So maybe, maybe that. I just never seem to have the time to really focus on doing short form stuff like New Yorker pieces. Some people I know do. Yeah, different kinds of things. I would love to do an hour drama. I just love hour dramas. And I've written a couple of specs, one of which was actually really good. And I've been flogging for 10 years, but no one wants to bite. I'd love to do that. There's a a couple of movies I've written, one in particular that was a remake of an old British film, in theory, although it was nothing like it. And it was so different that it freaked some people out. So the rights froze. And I would love for that to get made. that's what the, the director, Dean Pariseau, was just it was a labor of love. Um, there are projects, passion projects that I've had lying around for quite a while. I'd love to get one or more of those started. In general, I'd like to, you know, create something. But I, I really do like, I helped out on a Netflix show that two brothers I know uh, created. It was great. I, I went to table reads and, you know, suggested how they rewrote it and they went off and rewrote it and uh, I was there punching up on the set and that was, that was fun at the same time I really I loved uh, working uh, on Final Space with you guys and uh, again it was like winning, winning the lottery working on Veep it was a uh, with the six month hiatus in the middle it was like that was the only reason why I was able to work on Final Space is because of uh, the unfortunate uh, health issue of our star that was f- unbelievably grueling but just really special so mm-hmm. I would say just it's it's hard to have too many. I really want to accomplish this is in such a changeable industry, whose rate of change seems to have accelerated in recent years. But um, I guess that just keep doing this. I really like it. It's all I really like doing. And and I've never had a job where I couldn't wear a t shirt with something obscene on it to work. <laughs> so I like to keep keep that going as long as possible. <laughs> All right, before we go, we have a couple of final questions for you. Number one, what are you watching on TV right now? Since we're talking about comedy, I'll, I'll try to stick to comedy and not talk about Hinterland, though, which is a, a translation of Ugul, which means the dusk in Welsh, which is this uh, British show on Netflix I was, I've been enjoying. Lately, I've just really enjoyed Homecoming. It was great. Now, that was not a dramedy. That was a, a comma or a coma because it, it was, there were some el- comic elements when it was, it was, it had some funny stuff in it, but it was super dark and it was also half an hour. It, it's a really unique use of the form. I really liked Homecoming. I really liked Dead to Me. I really liked Russian Doll. I've loved Fleabag. I've, I've loved Archer, even when it got weird. It's one of the first of those, you know, adult, smart animated shows I mentioned. 
The Good Place is something I can watch it with my kid, and it's it's the best comedy on network television. Really sad; it's only doing four seasons. I know some of the writers. The Me- the great Megan Amram is there, and uh, the whole staff is rock stars. Uh, Veep, um, Silicon Valley. Uh, I didn't have, I wasn't there season five. So I watched the, that a couple times because it was like new to me. Cause like, you know, I really enjoyed watching the seasons I was there, but I knew every line, like, and I knew the lines that were there before we rewrote them eight times. So going through that was like, it was a, like a amusement park. I'm also sad that this is the final season of Silicon. I would say there's a show called, uh, it's on Amazon. It's a really weird show about a depressed spy who has to infiltrate like a plumbing company, the Patriot. Yeah, Patriot's really interesting and dark and weird. Orphan Black. Did I say Blowjack yet? Rick and Morty. That's some comedies. Oh, 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 Insecure. I love Insecure. Insecure is insanely good. Uh, except for the title. I like, because she, the character like is, is confused. This is a, but she's not insecure. She's very confident in some ways, but uh, I'm not going to quibble because I love that show. So those are some, okay. I can give you a bunch of dramas too, but this is about comedy. So there you go. Do you have any final advice for TV writers who are listening? People who want to become TV writers don't do it unless you actually absolutely have to, because it's super hard and unstable and difficult. Uh, if you're already doing it, congratulations. Uh, <laughs> Be smart with your money because work comes and goes is, the, is the, the big one. Don't sell a pilot and then buy a car in the same week, <laughs> which I've known a lot of people to do. Don't burn bridges. Be willing to do uh, things outside of your comfort zone. Get more sleep. <laughs> Seriously. I mean, you, you, if, you, if you are up super late watching something and you show up uh, hungover, you are not going to be, I can speak from experience. It's not going to, you're not going to be bringing your best version of yourself to work. And lastly, do you have any resources you can recommend to our listeners, be it uh, books, uh, apps, websites, anything? You think of? The Writers Guild of America West Library is a great one. And other than resources, I mean, libraries, the internet, Wikipedia. <laughs> Seriously, if you want to get a, a brief, shallow overview of a subject that you can later dig into in more depth with actual publications, it's, a, it's an important thing. All right. Well, before we go, don't forget that we are now on Patreon. So if you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting Paper Team via our Patreon page at paperteam.co slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. You'll get exclusive content, cheat sheets, all sorts of good stuff. And we can keep producing a great show for you every week. So thanks to our listeners for taking the time to tune in. And thanks very much to Dan for joining us. Thank you, guys. Thank you. And uh, you can get all the show notes for this episode at paperteam.co slash 154. As always, I'm on Twitter at TV Calling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. Uh, where can people find you on social media if you want to be found? I don't want to be found. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, if you have any thoughts, feedback, ideas for future episodes, you can always send them to ask at paperteam.co. And what are we doing next week? Uh, next week will be our uh, October Paper Tease episode where we read uh, teasers that people have sent in to us and critique them. And hopefully maybe we end up selecting a, another winner for a mentorship. Mm, so. Well, tune in for that next week. All right. We'll see you guys then. See you there. Bye.